0: of you that might be here for the first time. It's great to have you with us today. Uh, My name is Dave, and I'm the pastor preaching here at Four Oaks, and we're just really grateful that you chose to join us. We realize there's a number of ways that you could spend a Sunday morning, and we're grateful to God that you chose to be with us this morning. Just one announcement before we turn our attention to the Word of God, and that's for the ladies. Um, Registration remains open for... The women's weekend. The women's weekend is titled "Battle for Success," and that's with Carolyn McCauley. And, and ladies, I just want to say you are in for such a treat. Um, Kim and I have known Carolyn for twenty years. She is a a, a bright, godly, gifted teacher. And uh, this event is for single women, married women, older women, younger women. It's for any women that are asking the question, what should I be doing? Or what does God think about what I'm doing right now? So, ladies, you're not going to want to miss this. It's October 2nd and 3rd, and you can register out in the lobby after the service today, or you can just go online at fouroakschurch.com and register there as well. Well, for our guests, you've picked a a great time to join us because we are just getting started in a series on 2 Corinthians. So you can open up your Bibles to 2 Corinthians. This is an expositional series that we began two weeks ago. And so we're just in verse 8 now of of chapter 1. The series is titled Weak is Strong. And by the way, there are study guides that, if you didn't get one of these, you can get one. Uh, I think they're on those shelves right as you go out the door, but they're also back at the Connect desk. They look like this, so if you don't have one, grab one at the end of the service. The title of the series is Weak is Wise, and today we find ourselves in verse 8 of chapter 1. So, I'm going to begin reading through verse 11. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The title of this morning's message is, Week is Reliant. Week is Reliant. And if you wouldn't mind, would you join me in praying and just asking for God's help? Lord, we we present ourselves before Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To you be the glory in the church. Or we pray that your glory would manifest this morning through the preaching of your word. We pray that your glory would be manifested as we hear the word, as, it, as it's applied to our soul and applied in our lives. We pray that your name would be glorified. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This passage is a truly astounding section of scripture. It's remarkable because it references one of the darkest and most dramatic moments of Paul's life. One where he came to face, one where he came face to face with his frailty, his inability, his weakness, You know, Christian mystics talk about the dark night of the soul, but you know what? This was something far worse than that. It's one thing to be weak. It's another thing to be utterly burdened beyond one's strength. It's one thing to be discouraged. It's another thing to despair of life itself. It's one thing to feel like you're in a dark night, but it's another to feel as if you're under the sentence of death. Let me ask you a question this morning. Has life ever crushed you? You know, crashed through your door in some unsuspecting moment and just just leveled you? You know, filling your soul with this kind of bone-chilling dread about what the future holds? Maybe... For you, you can't relate to that. But you can relate to something less than that. Maybe you have or you are experiencing loss or physical pain. Or maybe right now it's one of the kids and you're just so afraid of what's going on there. Or there's some kind of relational disappointment. Or you're just at a place where you just never thought life was going to be like this at this age. Here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul tells a story about a time he was afflicted, a time he was burdened, a time he was perplexed and despairing. The design of this passage is not to elicit sympathy, but it's actually to convey to us a secret. A secret about God's activity when unexpected pain comes knocking at our door. And it's right here that God wants us to listen carefully to Paul's story. Because in listening to Paul's story, God's going to help to give us some kind of interpretation for the pain that we're experiencing. And to know that just like he did for Paul, our deliverance will come as well. And so we're going to explore Paul's drama, if you will, in four different acts. This is four acts in Paul's Asian drama. Act chapter 1 is the pain. The pain. This is how Paul introduces his experience in Asia, verse 8. For we do not want you to be ignorant, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength... That we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. Okay, so there was this experience in Asia of affliction. And we don't exactly know the nature of this affliction. Was it the riot talked about in Ephesians chapter or in Acts chapter 19 that took place in Ephesus? We don't know. Was it the wild beast that Paul encountered that he talks about in 1 Corinthians 15? We don't know. Was it rejection or sickness or some kind of persecution? What is this deadly peril that he talks about in 2 Corinthians chapter 1? We just don't know. But we do know that the cause, whatever it was, is withheld from us. And part of that is because God wants us all paying attention. God wants us to color ourselves into this passage. No one is exempt from what's being written here. This drama was written to speak to all of us. So we don't know the cause, but we do know this, that that affliction, whatever it was, created a burden so heavy that first, it was beyond his strength to bear, and secondly. He despaired of life itself. Now, this is where we just need to downshift a little bit and kind of peer closely at the wreckage that Paul is describing. Because apparently, it was this experience of incomprehensible weakness. Paul says we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength. The visual here is of a burden just crushing him. Imagine a man with a great burden on his back, except it's so heavy that he doesn't even have the strength to bear it, and so it stops him. It cripples him. It crushes him. How did he feel about that? Well, he, he says how he feels. He uses the term despaired. We despaired of life itself. Actually, the word for despair there is very interesting. It, it implies the total unavailability of any exit. In other words, there is no way, no perceived way of escape from the situation that he's in. In other words, we don't have the details of all this, but we do know that for Paul, it was a period where he felt trapped. There was no escape. He felt crushed. There was no strength. He felt despairing. There was no hope. A season where there's little exit, where there's little hope of survival. And Paul explains his emotional state there. He said, we felt, Paul's talking about how he felt, he feels. We felt as if we had received the sentence of death. Not that he had died. He's not saying we felt like we had died. He says, we felt like something had been proclaimed over us. That there was an announcement about our situation that was utterly hopeless. That our life, our situation, the outcome, where it was going, was going to go nowhere. It was going to die. I wonder if anybody here might describe their life that way right now. I wonder if when you think about your job, you think about just a sentence of death over it. Moms here with small kids just feel like there's no future. There's no exit. I'm trapped. Or a business owner. Or maybe a teenager. The sentence of death. How does that feel? You know, if you're following Downton Abbey right now, which if you don't know what that is, it's just another BBC period piece that's afflicting fathers and husbands everywhere. There's this stunning plot twist where One of the main characters, Bates, is charged and convicted of killing his first wife. Now, he's innocent of that, but he's charged and convicted of it. And so he stands in the dock, that's the witness stand. He stands in the dock as the jury returns the guilty verdict. And then the judge sits there. He's got the powdered wig on and the whole thing. And he pronounces over Bates. He says, John Bates... You have been found guilty of willful murder. You will be taken from here to a place of execution where you will be hanged by your neck until you are dead. And everybody gasps and Bates is speechless and his wife cries out as the sentence of death chills the air. Because it seems so final, it seems so desperate, so hopeless, so futureless. Paul says, that's how I was in Asia. That's how I felt in Asia. You know something, it's, it's actually a hopeful moment when we realize that being a believer doesn't spare us of those feelings. It's a very hopeful thing to know that you can love the Savior and still feel sentenced to death. And it's hopeful, not because it's it's a terrible feeling, but because there are promises attached to this passage and promises attached that Paul ultimately experienced in his life. And so that makes me want to ask you this morning, are you in Asia right now? Feeling afflicted, feeling trapped, feeling Hopeless. You know, maybe you're you're surprised by Paul's raw honesty, and you never imagined that his life could somehow connect to your marriage, or his life could somehow connect to, to the way you feel about your debts, or your kids, or the combination of powerlessness and fatigue that's visiting you right now. Anywhere where you feel God wants to meet us today there. And he wants to begin his own story of deliverance in our life. But he first wants to fill our weakness with purpose, which leads us to act two, the purpose. Now look carefully at the words in the second second part of nine. But that was to make us, just stop right there in fact, Let's just stop there for a second. That was to make us. That experience was to make us. The words there imply an authority that exists that enforces a certain outcome. This affliction in Asia was there to make something happen. So Paul's automatically reminding us that there's a writer of this drama, one who determines actions, one who gives meaning to the afflictions in Asia. And that writer, of course, is God. Now you say, Dave, wait a minute. Are you suggesting that God intentionally brought Paul to a place of weakness? That God intentionally allowed Paul to go to a place of despair? That's exactly what I'm saying. Why would he do that? Because what we rely upon is serious business to God. In fact, let's just let Paul... Speak for himself. But that was to make us, to make us what? That was to make us rely not upon ourselves, but upon God who raises the dead. You know what? I don't think we take reliance as seriously as God does. I think reliance to us means something completely different. You know, for us, yeah, we want a reliable car and we hope for a reliable job or maybe we'll make some reliable friends. If we're single, maybe meet a reliable spouse. But God is so serious about reliance that He creates the worst moments of our life to produce it. God is so serious about reliance that He creates the worst moments of our life to produce it. And maybe we need to think a little bit more about that. Because we're on, if you're anything like me, you're constantly praying this prayer, prayer. Lord, help me trust you. I want to trust you. And God says, you really want to trust me? Yes, Lord, I want to trust you. Okay, then. Get ready for affliction. Get ready for weakness. Get ready for burdens and despair and feeling sentenced to death. Um, actually, I was just thinking maybe you'd like impart it to me in one of your miracle things. See, weak is reliant when it forces us to to suspend judgment upon God's motives. When God acts and we don't know, and so we begin judging God, weakness becomes reliant when it forces us to suspend judgment on why God is doing what he's doing and to simply trust God. See, it's one thing to be weak, and to know the reason that we're weak. It's one thing to be weak and to know the cause. You know what I mean? You, know, you have an illness and it afflicts you. You, you get it. You, you, you lose a loved one and you grieve. Well, you, you understand that. The cause may be life-altering. The cause may be earth-shattering for you. But you know what it is. It's identifiable. But there's a kind of weakness that has reliance as its goal a work that God does in weakness, that has as its outcome reliance, where we don't know, where the cause is not entirely clear, where we are deprived of the answer to that inscrutable question of, why, Lord, why, why are you doing this? So Joseph denies the lust of Potiphar's wife in this shining display of godliness. You know, he passes the test. It's an amazing example to us. What happens? He's in prison for two years. No discussion, no explanation, only the prison door slamming shut and echoing through the the chambers of the prison. We know why, because we're reading his story, but he didn't know why when it was happening. See, when you're just the readers of the story or outside of the story, it's so much easier to see the purpose of the story. When it's happening to our friends, it's so much easier to tell them about the purpose, to supply them with the passages, to remind them of the promises. But when you're in the story and the daggers of pain are being thrust through your heart, well then, the, the, the affliction seems entirely arbitrary. It seems like God is just acting randomly in your life and doing things without any expectation or any explanation whatsoever. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that every Christian in weakness, every Christian in affliction, has to stand before that great precipice of why and decide whether they're going to plunge in to the pit of doubt or cross on a bridge called trust, and meet God on the other side. And it's really where we turn when we meet that question of why. It's where we turn when we meet the inscrutable why that determines our reliance upon God. Because why can be a boulder that we meet and just shatters our faith. We smack into it and our faith is gone or, why it can be something precious, where we don't have the answer, but we know it that to somewhere in there is this is this hidden gift, and so we wait for it, we anticipate it, we trust God for it. Last week, uh, Garrett Gilkey, you know, guard. Plays center sometimes for the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Third preseason game with Miami. He's running down the field, and he's hit from the side, and he hears in his knee, pop. Now, there is not a professional athlete in the world that doesn't fear pop. They have nightmares about pop. The following morning... Garrett Gilkey wrote as follows quote, In that moment of pain, I had a strange peace of God which surpasses all understanding. I had heartfelt assurance that everything was going to be okay. But I was assured of something more. This something more important. This Season of suffering. This injury is a gift. It's a gift. How does somebody who's sustaining a season-ending injury say 12 hours later, it is a gift? How does that happen? Perhaps it's because they see some sense of purpose beyond the pain. And here in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, God gives us some sense of purpose behind the pain. It is to supply. It is to make us. It is to help us rely upon God who raises the dead. Some of you are suffering right now. And you feel like you have you know, no interpretation whatsoever God isn't explaining himself, He's not presenting himself for discussion with you. You don't know why. And Second Corinthians chapter one reminds us in that that yes, we don't know why, but we do know at least one of the purposes, and that is that there's this gift of reliance, where God is using this to make us rely not on ourselves, but upon God, who raises the dead. Act 2. Act 3, the promises. The promises. Look at 2 Corinthians 1, the latter section of 9 again. That was to make us, Paul said, rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. Verse 10, he delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So here Paul explains why he trusts. It's not the why behind his weakness, it's why he's able to rely upon God, and he gives two reasons that he's able to rely upon God. First, he says, because God raises the dead. That was to make us rely not upon ourselves, but upon a God who is described in the following way, the God who raises the dead. Paul says, it felt like we were sentenced to death, but, hey, that's not a problem for this God. He raises the dead. He's in the business of dead raising. In fact, check out the present tense that Paul uses. He said he raises, not past tense, not future tense. It's present tense. In other words, raising the dead was not confined just to the resurrection of Jesus Christ in the past Raising the dead is not confined to the future resurrection of the dead. He raises the dead. He's about the business today of raising the dead. That means dead situations, those are God's specialty. He said, bring it on. If it's dead, that's where I do my best work. Barren times, you know, those places, those seasons where where you just feel like there's no life. Do you have anything like that in your life right now? Something that just seems barren, something that seems beyond hope, something that seems beyond your control, and it just seems dead. You know, you look at your devotions, maybe, and you feel like, yeah, I mean, honestly, there's no spark, there's no fruit, there's no life, it just feels dead. God says, no problem, I do my best work there. You look at your kids, and you think they've been given so much by God, and yet they're bearing so little fruit for God. And I look at the situation and I honestly realize there's no interest, no zeal, no life. It's they seem dead. Second Corinthians says there's wonderful news. We can entrust them to the one who raises the dead. So he, God raises the dead. And if you're sitting there thinking, you know, that sounds a lot like the gospel. He brings life from death. Part of what Paul was saying is that gospel experience is embedded into his life in every season. That Life, as you walk through it, as you experience it, it holds these little gospel pockets where we feel like the sentence of death has been proclaimed over us, that we might trust and rely upon the one who gives life, that we might ultimately experience life as a result of trusting in him. Which reminds us this morning that our weakness is not the end of this drama. God raises the dead. That our afflictions are not the end of this drama. God raises the dead. That our, our, our suffering is not the final chapter of our story. God raises the dead. And that's incredibly encouraging to us. It's been incredibly encouraging to me. This passage has had enormous meaning to me over the past few years. I've shared before how some of the circumstances that delivered Kim and I to Tallahassee, how we arrived here after three decades of being in the same local church, in the same denomination, and then encountered all of these Unexpected problems and unanticipated challenges and mistakes and sins and ignorance. And I'm just describing me right there. I'm not even talking about anybody else. I mean, that's just, that's just me. And they all kind of converge in an unexpected way, fully unanticipated, to deliver us out of that and here. And I want to be honest with you in saying I had to struggle with feeling almost defrauded by God. You know, because, because even though we don't declare it, there's a kind of transactional thing that we have with God where we feel like if we live by a certain set of values, it should deliver certain outcomes. Oh, I know you parents here don't think that you believe that, but when you know you'll believe it when you feel like your kids are not doing what you think they're supposed to be doing. And then you begin to have these feelings towards God. Wait a minute. I thought if we did this, this, and this, and it was going to deliver this, wasn't that the arrangement? And we have these values that we think should deliver a certain kind of fruit. And then all of a sudden, my history, my relationships, my family, so much of what I had spent much of my adult life building seemed to just go in another direction. And it laid kind of open-ended, unresolved. Nothing had a bow on it. Nothing, nothing ultimately came together. And I'm not talking about broken relationships. I'm just talking about disappointed dreams. I'm talking about that sense of, how did we get here? How did this happen? In fact, part of what I'm realizing, is, I think, is that, that life in a fallen world is often open-ended. You know, because we labor and we toil in this, in this broken place, in a world of brokenness, a world where closure and, and resolution are often denied us because family and friends and people we love and even ourselves can never act fully consistent with what we say we believe. Only Jesus was the one who was fully consistent always doing what he said he believed. Apart from that, we live in a fallen world that never delivers that way. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that Paul couldn't connect all the frayed edges of his life either, and so he went back to the only closure that matters. He went back to the cross. He went back to the resurrection. He went back to the God who raises the dead the open-endedness of his situation, the lack of resolution. He just realized, you know what? In a fallen world, closure is overrated. In a fallen world, I'm just not going to get it all the time. And so I want to go back to that which does bring closure. I want to go back to the cross. I want to go back to the resurrection. Because the cross represents God's closure on the most open-ended matter in the whole universe. And that's not the loss of our relationships, that's not the loss of our history, that's not the loss of our home, that's not the loss of our health or our dreams. That's the issue of how will God resolve our rebellion against him? How will God satisfy his righteous wrath towards those that exist in sin? How will God help those that are converted fight the power of sin in their lives? How will God guarantee that they endure until the final day? And the answer to that, all, is in the cross and the resurrection. So it's at the cross where God delivers the closure that matters most. And if you're living life waiting for more, well, hang on, because... The rest is coming. There is a day coming when the new heavens and the new earth will come. We'll get new bodies. God will explain it all to us, and we'll get a sense for what it all meant. But right now, we have to remember that life is often dead, or it feels dead, to use the words of Paul. But we serve a God who raises the dead. That's the first reason, and that's the first promise that Paul gives us. And then the second one is that God rescues the weak. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and He will deliver us. On Him we have set our hope. He will deliver us again, He says in verse 10. (laughs) I mean, a more comprehensive statement on deliverance we will not find in Scripture. God delivered us in the past. He will deliver us in the present, and He will deliver us again in the future. I mean, that pretty much covers all of it, doesn't it? See, what Paul is doing here is he's remembering God's faithfulness to him in the past. And he's taking God's faithfulness in in the past and he's importing it into the present affliction, which then fuels his expectation for what's going to happen in the future. And that's so helpful for us. It's so helpful for me. Because sometimes I go into the wrong place to look for hope. What about you? Where do you go for hope when you're in, in the cave, when you feel the sentence of, of death being pronounced over you, when you feel like the afflictions are weakening you? And 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 let's be honest. I mean, we've all been there at some point, or we will be there if you haven't been there yet. We've all been pounded, or we'll be pounded down by some experience in Asia, where we ultimately have to find hope and help from somewhere. Where do we find it? Well, Second Corinthians chapter one reminds us to follow Paul's trail. And to follow after Paul and remember that God rescued us in the past, that he will rescue us in the present, and that he will rescue us in the future as well. So that's Act 3, which delivers us to the final act, Act 4, the prayers. The prayers. Paul says, you also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. Now, now, now check this out. I, I just find this so fascinating. Paul has just expressed his faith that God is going to deliver him, but he still calls for prayer. In other words, Paul's confidence that God will deliver him does not diminish the need for prayer. His faith and his hope Do not eliminate prayer. In fact, not only does his faith and hope not eliminate prayer, but it energizes prayer. It energizes his desire to invite others to pray for him. Because the prayer here in 2 Corinthians 1 is not just personal. It's it's a call to others. He's not just appealing to kind of a tight circle of people, just his mates. He's appealing to the whole church. He wants the whole church to, to pray for him. Here's a paradox that you don't expect to see right out of the gate in 2 Corinthians. Paul says, I'm in faith, I need help. I'm in faith, I need help. I'm in faith, but I I still need help. And you can help me by praying for me. See, part of that reliance thing that we were talking about earlier is is to get us looking beyond ourselves for answers. So what Paul does is Paul looks to God for strength, but another way that Paul looks beyond himself for answers is to go to the church to pray. It's to humble himself and say, well, verse, verse 11, you also must help us by prayer. See, if you haven't realized it yet, that to, to follow Christ is to start a kind of lifelong project where God helps us to transfer our reliance from ourselves onto Him. And when you're a member of a local church, we get our local church along with us to help us to be less reliant upon ourselves. Because let's face it, I mean, you know, we, particularly as Americans, we celebrate self-reliance. We are born self-reliant. We love the fact that we're self-reliant. It's a sign of success. We love the entrepreneur. We love the athletes, we, those who reach down and pull it out. And I saw a video recently of a, of, of a race that was going on. They're running around a track, and, and there's a girl running. It's, it's, it's all women racing. And the girl falls down, and then the camera you know, continues on with those that are racing. So you never see that girl, and, and the camera's going on, and it's going, so they, they continue to go around the track. And all of a sudden, in the back of the camera, you see this girl coming back into the camera and running, 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 running until she passes everybody and she wins the race. And you see that, and you think, that's amazing, the human spirit, what, what we're able to summon when we want to, when we need to. We want to come forward, and we want to rise to the challenge, and that's what it means to be human. We are self Reliant. But who's really magnified in experiences like that? And I'm not saying that's wrong. I think there are things about it that are really right. But anytime we find ourselves relying only upon ourselves, we might be missing a whole other power source that's available to us. Because if we live relying on ourselves, we get only what we can deliver. But if we rely upon God, we get what God can deliver. And so when it comes to pain, when it comes to affliction, what Paul does is he's saying, I'm going to rely upon God, and part of the way I rely upon God is I open my soul and I invite help in. I open my soul and I get real with people. Did you know where he started in verse 8? He says, hey, brothers, I don't want you to be ignorant of the affliction we experience in Asia. You're my brothers. I don't want you to be ignorant. Verse 11, you also, you've got to help us. Help us by prayer. This is how you can help us. You know, Paul Paul wants them to know. And and so there's a sense where Paul's come to a place where in him, I mean, he's an apostle. He's he's seen the Lord Jesus Christ. He's done it all. And yet in his mind, he comes to a point where he says, but I still need my friends. I still need my church. I still need other people praying for me. Listen, some of you are are hurting this morning. And, And my question to you is, who knows about it? who knows who's praying for you can i just make an appeal it's and it's it's one that i want to come under as well and that is can we just agree together that we're going to drop the self-reliant and managed image that we have as as churchgoers that we kind of have it all pulled together and we're going to follow paul's example we're going to let each other know we're, to not be ignorant of the afflictions that we're experiencing. To verse 11, invite people to help us by prayer. In other words, we talk about our burdens. We talk about our afflictions. Paul even says, let me tell you how I felt. I felt like I had received the sentence of death. Guys, when was the last time you were honest and told some other man the way you felt about something so that you can get him to pray for you? Ask for prayer. Invite prayer. Paul needed it. We need it as well. You know, one of the things we're doing at the church here is first Monday of every month, beginning in October, 7 o'clock, right here in this room. We're doing first Monday prayer, first Monday of every month, 7 o'clock here. It's just an opportunity to apply verse 11. We need help. Help us by prayer. See, weak is reliant when it pushes us beyond ourselves to ask other people to help us. That's when weakness becomes reliant. And it was true of Paul, and it should be true of us as well. And as I move to wrap up this morning, I want to end in a way that gives us the opportunity to apply this passage. Because I just have a sense, and I believe this sense, if I may, from the Spirit of God, is is indicating that some of you have been stirred by this passage. At some point in this message, there was a transition that took place where God began engaging you on a very personal level. And it's your opportunity to do now what Paul did, and for you to say, you also must... Help us by prayer. And so what I want to do is, in a second, I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to give the benediction, and we're going to dismiss. As we dismiss, the elders are going to come forward. And I want to invite you to come forward as well, particularly if you feel like you're in a season where you are experiencing this Asian affliction. You don't know why, but you sense God is at work. And yet you need to add to your faith the prayers of God's people. And I want to appeal to you, please don't allow discomfort, which, I mean, let's be honest, that's just another way to say pride. Don't allow your pride to deprive you of the opportunity to experience God through the prayers of God's people. If your heart has been stirred by Paul's example and you need prayer, that it's typically just one step. For me, it's one thing I have to overcome, and that is I have to humble myself under the mighty hand of God and say, yeah, I, I need that too. I need prayer too. And so I want to encourage you. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give a benediction. Elders are going to come forward. I want you to come forward. And let us, let us pray for you, and let that be for you an expression of faith that says along with Paul in verse 11, you also must help me by prayer. Let's pray together.